Father, I thank you that you are magnificent. We gathered this morning to celebrate and worship your sovereignty and your greatness. I ask, Father God, that you would help us this morning. That you would teach us, guide us. Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts a desire to be more like the Son, our Savior. And I ask, Father God, that you would transform us by the power of your word. That our hearts would be changed. We honor you this morning. The God of the universe. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came and died for us. You bought and purchased our lives. We honor you this morning. Have your way with us. In Christ's name, amen. Children can be excused for Children's Church. And while they're doing that, I want to take a survey. This is a show of hands survey. I did this in the first service, and if you want, I can talk to you later about the results of the survey. But um, what I want you to do is, if you, if, if you want to be happy, I want you to raise your hand. Okay. It's pretty much unanimous. If you're if you don't want to be happy, raise your hand. Now, now see nobody raised their hand. No, somebody's walking out. Okay, you I'll get you later. The reality is that everyone wants to be happy. That's, that's kind of the way we're wired. The struggle for all of us is how to find true happiness, a happiness that actually exists. We try so many things that fail to bring us happiness. Over the next weeks, we're going to be looking at the, the introduction to the greatest sermon that's ever been given. It's the Sermon on the Mount. The preacher, by the way, his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. The introduction to Christ's great sermon is usually called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes is, a, is, is actually a, a Latin word, bidisunt, and it literally means blessed are. So we're not, you know, there isn't any reason to not call them the Beatitudes. The passage that we're going to look at, the Beatitudes, it describes qualities or experiences in which we find happiness. Now, to go through this, this series, the first thing we're going to do, and that's what we're doing today, is to look at some background so that we get an idea of what was going on and what Jesus was involved with before he gave this sermon. So this is an important area of background. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
Now, the reality is that when Jesus was, was especially when he was beginning this ministry, the area that he, he ministered in is, is an area roughly 30 miles wide and 60 miles long. It's not very big. So the news of his ministry would travel quickly, and anyone wanting to hear him could, could easily travel to hear him and see him minister. As he began to teach, Christ's primary ministry was in synagogues. And the synagogue was the primary center of Jewish, religious, social, and, and legal life. The, the synagogue was central in their culture. They worshipped on the Sabbath, and, and Sabbath services included the reading of sections of the Torah and the prophets, and there were prayers and singing, and, the, and a text of Scripture would be explained. If there were visiting rabbis, they would be given an opportunity to expound Scripture. Jesus took advantage of this custom, and, and so did Paul. The synagogues then gave Jesus a place to teach. And initially, especially in those first months and first year or so, he was, I mean, he was just welcome. As, as his ministry progressed, especially towards the end, they didn't welcome him into this, the, the synagogues the same way. These synagogues was where he began to proclaim his message. Now, proclaim, in verse 23, it literally means to herald or to cry out. And it is most like what I'm doing right now. It's most like what we call preaching. The message that Jesus preached was the gospel of the kingdom. The message declaring the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. Now, think about that. Here's the Messiah proclaiming that he was there, the Messiah. I, I, that just fascinates me. The Messiah was proclaiming, I'm here. That is the good news. And gospel, that's what it means. Gospel means good news. Jesus preached the good news of the Messiah and the coming kingdom. The, God, the good news was God's plan to rescue those who believed to rescue those who believe from the kingdom of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of the Son of God. The gospel then is, is, is really the message of salvation by grace through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul gives us a very succinct statement of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, I'm going to stop there because I want you to learn something about that phrase. As of first importance. This was a method. This was a colloquialism in Hebrew that meant everything you're going to hear from me after this statement is the most important. And in a way, from Paul's standpoint, the way this is written, what he is saying is, you can take all my other teaching, you can do anything you want with all the words that you're going to ever hear from me, but these that you're going to hear are the most important. That's why that's there. So, of first importance, what is it? This is what I received from Christ. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with, with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance 
with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That is the gospel. Jesus was teaching in the synagogues that gospel. Now, it may not have sounded exactly like that, because he didn't have Paul's words, obviously. But what he is saying is, here I am. I've come to die for you. I'm going to raise from the dead. I am the Messiah. Now, to proclaim that he was the Messiah came with some problems. Because if he goes into the synagogue and he says, I am the Messiah, the Jewish people are going to go, you are a heretic, and we're going to take you outside the city, and we're going to stone you to death. So Jesus needed to prove his authenticity with more than just words. So how, do, how does he do that? Well, healing every kind of disease and sickness would have been a huge demonstration of power that could only be attributed to God. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus healed demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics. These would have been stunning miracles to the people. People would have gone, that was absolutely amazing. Wouldn't it? The other thing about Jesus that was different was that he spoke with powerful, authoritative words. He was also, he was filled with this compassion towards people who needed healing. He saw them. They were hurting. He had compassion for their suffering. This is very different than in the times we live in, this idea of healing, because we live in a time with great advances in sanitation, medical knowledge, and technical innovation. That's the time we live in. But when Jesus ministered in Galilee, disease was rampant. Some kind of plague would come, and the only way it would end is if it ran its total course, its natural course. And what that means is that there were countless people who died. And there were many, many people because of those diseases that ended up crippled. The other reality is that at that time, a simple infection, simple infection, was often fatal. Something that we would go, oh, yeah, you know, a little infection would kill people. So when you put it into the, 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 the context of the time, it's easy to understand why huge crowds would gather wherever Jesus was. Everyone was affected by some kind of disease or pain or suffering. So you'd go to the guy who's healing, right? That's, that's what I would do. Because the news of a healer curing people of any affliction, it says, it would have spread like wildfire. You, you couldn't have, he couldn't have escaped anywhere. He's the healer. So great f crowds followed him, as verse 25 tells us. That makes perfect sense. Great crowds. Lots of people. So, so now, with that background, to help us, let's go on to the passage in Matthew 5, in Matthew 5 beginning of verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
This is important. This is another cultural statement here. People at that time understood if a rabbi spoke while standing, the rabbi's message was unofficial and informal. So in our day and age, Zach and I stand up here and we preach. And maybe you don't think of it as authoritative, but you know, that's our custom. If a rabbi was to stand like we do, everybody would go, well, the rabbi's spouting off. It's not that big a deal. But as soon as the rabbi sat down, everyone would know that what he speaks is authoritative. When he sat down, he was speaking with authority and his words were official. When Jesus sat down, he was giving an official authoritative message as the sovereign king of the universe. Now, maybe all of those that were gathered didn't recognize that he was the king of the universe, but that was the authority that came with sitting down. That's why that's included there. Verse 2. Another statement that sometimes we just kind of go, why is that there? And he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, so he's opening his mouth? It seems odd. This, this doesn't, is it even needed? It's kind of redundant. But this was another colloquialism used to introduce a particularly important solemn message. When this is written this way, what the author wants you to grasp is, this is an important message from the speaker's heart. This means Jesus was giving a message from his heart of great importance, great importance, authoritative, and delivered with great concern and compassion. So those two, those two cultural things put this at a very high level. He's sitting down, and the writer is telling us he sat down, and this is coming from the heart. This is deep stuff. So where that takes us is we had better pay attention. This is really important. So this is the beginning of Christ's sermon. And I want to read through this passage because he begins with nine statements of being blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this passage, blessed is from makarios in the Greek, and it means freedom from cares. And and if you take it down to its basic form, makarios, blessed, means happiness. Happiness. And it's obvious, as we're going to see, that this happiness is not a happiness in the same sense that we usually think of happiness. We have kind of a warped idea of happiness. 
In the Greek mind, the Greek behind this, the thinking was of being unaffected by the world or circumstances. Being blessed, what's behind that term, is not being affected by circumstances and, and uh, people and, and things. It is an inward peace, a joy, a happiness and well-being that is not dependent upon any external thing or circumstance. That's not how we usually work with happiness. This word also communicates something else, especially in Scripture. Blessed is a word that communicates character and a unique character because it's used several places to describe God. So this word is describing a character quality of God. For example, Psalms 68.35, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Another is Psalm 72, 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. What this means is that Whatever we're going to find out in this passage, whatever is meant by blessed can be found in God. It's a part of his character, part of his nature. This is also something that we see Paul use to describe Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.15, which he, speaking of Jesus, will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So blessed is something that describes a character quality of God. What does that mean? It means God's happy. How many of you in your mind think of God and you grumpy old man sitting there, stroking his beard, grumpy? No, God's happy. Being blessed, being happy, it's a fundamental character of God. And being blessed, it describes God. So this means that for us to be blessed, for us to be able to receive what we're going to see in the Beatitudes, we can only experience that if we believe in Jesus, if we're a part of God. There is no blessedness. You cannot be blessed. You cannot be happy, as the Bible describes it, without having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the first step in finding happy is to be saved. you got to know Jesus. To believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Each believer can find this happiness because... The Bible teaches we have actually received the nature of God. I don't think we we grasp that like we should. It it almost sounds like, "Mm, I don't know if I want to go there, because you as a believer have the nature of God. And I'll bet you, you don't think of yourself that way. But that's what what we're taught. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises 
so that through them you may become, what? Partakers of the divine nature. Now someone's going, well, are you telling me that I'm a God? No, don't go there. You have a nature that is the same as God's because you have been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus. You have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How have you done that? Because of what Jesus has done for you. But because of what Jesus has also done for you, he has imputed righteousness to you and you have the nature of God. We can be blessed because we are partakers of the divine nature. If you want to be happy, you must know Jesus as Savior. Okay, so we've been talking about happiness, blessed. What, what is happiness? Now, nobody's going to argue this outwardly. Maybe some of you are more spiritual than I am, but we naturally divine, de- define happiness as getting what we want. We define happiness in what we can acquire, the things we can have. The more toys I have, the happier I'll be. And we, we think that getting happy means being treated positively. That's the way we do it. The world teaches that we can be happy if we're rich, famous, attractive, like certain pastors, popular, or powerful. But that's not what Jesus teaches. That's not what Scripture teaches. We're going to see that happiness goes much deeper. Every one of us, everyone, seeks to be happy and tries to find that happiness in the wrong places. We all do it. One of those places we do it is with possessions. And I shared this story with Zach earlier, and I... I think it's appropriate. I had a friend in high school, so this would have been 1974, so some of you don't have a clue about that because you didn't even exist in 1974. But in 1974, in high school, what did high school boys really, really want? And I scolded somebody because I thought she said, girls. Is that what you said in first service? So, in translating a prom date, that meant girls. Let's put that aside. Because really, in 1974, what every high school boy wanted was a car. Was their own, you know, a car, a truck, something. It's mine. That was huge. And I had a friend, and he he was driving dad's old beat-up or whatever, and finally his dad got him a GTO, which in 1974, that would have been... Really a hot car. Now, this car wasn't brand new. It was used, but it was sweet. And this guy gets, gets to go down there, you know, and his dad's had it all gone through. It's been worked on, and it's been detailed. And he gets into his new GTO, and he's pulling it out of the dealership. And a guy runs a red light, and boom, pops him, T-bones it, totals the GTO. His happiness lasted, what, three minutes? Maybe. That's it. There's no more more happiness. Somebody hit it and ruined it. 
That is so typical of how we look at happiness. It can be taken away so easily. There is, a, there, there is a character in the Bible that is the epitome of this example. His name is Solomon. He was the most magnificent king to ever rule. That's the way he's described. He had everything based on the world's standards. He should have been happier than any other human being ever to exist. Based on the world's standards. He was, he was a king. He was of the noble line of David. King David, the greatest king. That was his dad. He was part of the royal line, the lineage of the Messiah. He ruled and, and lived in this magnificent palace in, in Jerusalem, the glorious city. His wealth was nearly indescribable. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament is in 2 Chronicles 1.15. It, it tells us that Solomon's silver was as common rocks. Solomon had every pleasure known. He had food, possessions, servants, vineyards, gardens, women, horses, anything. He had everything that the world would say, this will make you happy. He was also considered the most intelligent man who ever lived. I know you think of that of Zach and I, but... Wow! He had every reason to be the, the, the happiest guy there is. Right? What does he write about life? Go to the book of Ecclesiastes and you'd be amazed. Here's the happiest guy around. He begins this way, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity is not something that has the sink on it in your bathroom here. That's not what we're talking about. Vanity, it means emptiness. There's nothing there. It's empty. And he's saying, all of life is empty. And if you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you find the greatest king, the guy who should be the happiest on the planet, he's depressed. He's like really in a dark, dark place. None of it gave him happiness. The reality is so clear. Happiness cannot be found in physical things. Happiness cannot be found in anything. Get this. No, happiness cannot be found in anything connected to the curse of the, of, of the earth. Well, that includes everything, doesn't it? You are not going to find happiness in any material thing. You are not going to find happiness in any human relationship. You're not going to find happiness permanently and, and, and forever in, in your spouse. You are not going to find it there because it's all part of the cursed earth. You can't find happiness there. Not the biblical kind of happiness that we're going to look at. The contentment of the soul, real happiness, is only found in our relationship with God. We find happiness when we are connected to God's character, to His perfection. 
His holiness, to His love. That's where we find happiness. If we look for happiness and contentment anywhere else, we will be disappointed. A lot of our society says you'll be happy if you have wealth. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. What that means is stop it. Verse 5. When your eyes light on it, on wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I was reminded of what happened to my retirement fund a couple weeks after 9-11. Just, just in a matter of really a few hours, 80 grand, gone. You, you, you think you're going to get happiness from your wealth? It can disappear that quickly. There is no lasting satisfaction in what the world offers. The things of this world, really what they do is they fuel their, their fuel for pride and lust and selfishness. The things of the world are like weeds choking out what produces contentment and fruit. The Beatitudes will teach us where to find happiness. We will see that real happiness looks extremely different than what the world around us defines as happiness. In a way, Paul writes about this difference in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The reality of what Jesus teaches and what the Bible teaches is that we are, that what we are, what we are, determines what we do. It teaches that what is important is being, belonging to God. God isn't after what you do. He's not after what people do. He's after what people are. He's after people belonging to Him. To behave like Christ requires a person to become like Christ. If you don't love Jesus, you cannot live like Jesus. So this this is a radical change from how most of us live and how we pursue happiness. The Beatitudes and, and, and really the entire Sermon on the Mount It gives us a clear statement of the standard of living that God intends. A standard of living that produces blessing and joy instead of despair. This standard of living that God wants us to be in cannot be obtained by the world's system. 
or circumstances or people. But the other side of that is that the the standard that God wants us to live by and the blessing that he has for us cannot be taken away by the world system or by people or by circumstances. So when you get blessed by God, you got blessed and nobody's taking it away from you. It's not like the GTO. Nobody's going to crash into your happiness and take it away from you if it is what God blesses you with. Being blessed, happy, content, as God designs, gives us the ability to endure through any difficulty or trial. This is, this is so much a part of where believers live. How can believers go through all of these things that, that believers go through? That's because we're blessed. There's something so deep inside of us that's different than the world around us. It's a standard of living, and that's what we're going to see in this study. This is also why James makes his incredible statement in James chapter 1, in his letter. What's he say? Count it all joy. That would be happiness. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you're a believer, you're blessed. Or at least you can be blessed. And by being blessed, you can go through anything. The question is whether or not you're connecting to who you are in Christ. If you're here this morning or if you're watching and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be blessed. Everything that you think of that would make you happy could be taken away from you. So I plead with you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. Accept who he is. Understand who he, who he is, what he has done for you. Get saved and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you sent your son to die for us, to rescue us from darkness. And I thank you, Father God, that nothing can take that away. I ask, Father, for anyone who's here or watching that wants to accept you, that they would just pour their heart out to you, let you know the simplicity of what it is. The prayer might be something like this. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need help. I recognize that Jesus is the help, that he came and he died for me and he rose from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God and I, I receive him now and I'm, I call him Lord and Savior and if that's your heart's cry this morning, then you become a part of, of God's kingdom, a part of God's people. Oh, Father, help those who don't know you to come to that saving knowledge. And Father, I ask for those of us who do know you, help us, Father God, to remember who we are. That that's where we would be 
content. That that's where we would understand our happiness. That we're blessed in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Now, Father, as we've gathered together as the church, I ask that you would help us at this time, that we would set everything else in life aside, and that we would remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that we would remember his burial, that we would remember that he rose from the dead. This is the time that we use to remember. So important. And Holy Spirit, stir in us, examine us, shed light on our hearts, that as we prepare for communion, we would also set aside those things that are hindrances to who we are. Holy Spirit, show us who we need to forgive. Holy Spirit, show us the sins that we need to confess to our Father. Holy Spirit, guide us, teach us, encourage us. Father, thank you that we can come to you this morning and receive from you by remembering the sacrifice of your son. Father, we take this very seriously. Forgive us for those things that we have done. Help us. Comfort us and guide us. Jesus, thank you that everything that was necessary for us to become a part of the kingdom and the family of God, you provided on the cross through your body and your blood. In Christ's name.